Honestly, that's the closest that we've had on this program as to, to ramblings of a madman. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I was just kidding. It just... If it's money you want, I've got money. If it's life you want, I can be funny. Nearly 300 years of European exploration of the present-day California coast fell short of finding the elusive Humboldt Bay. Despite a well-documented sighting in 1806 by Russian explorers, it wasn't until 1849 when a European land expedition made clear the exact location of what is the second-largest bay in California. On May 13, 1850, a settlement was founded on its shore. They called it Eureka, a Greek word meaning I have found it. Though Eureka was initially founded with the intent of serving as a gold mining route from Sacramento, the settlement soon found its calling as a lumber town. By 1854, seven lumber mills had located there, and by 1855, 140 lumber schooners operated out of the bay, moving lumber from the mills to the cities all along the Pacific coast. Lumber production continued to grow, earning Eureka the title Timber Capital of California. But Europeans were not the first people to find the bay. Prior to white settlement, the area was home to the Wyoop people, who called the land Jarojiji, meaning where you sit and rest. Once Europeans arrived, it wasn't restful for long. The settlers ultimately overwhelmed the small native population, cutting off access to ancestral sources for food and stealing their land. The U.S. government and military officials worked to assist the Wyoots and maintain peace, but despite these efforts, a massacre of the Wyoot people took place on Indian Island in the spring of 1860 by a group of locals, thought to be primarily Eureka businessmen. Completion of the Northwestern Pacific Railroad in 1914 provided the local lumber industry with an alternative to ships. It also provided the first safe land route between San Francisco and Eureka for people to venture to the Redwood Empire. As a result, Eureka's population of 7,300 swelled to 15,000 within 10 years. By 1922, the Redwood Highway was completed, providing the first reliable direct overland route for automobiles from San Francisco. By 1931, the Eureka Street Railway operated 15 streetcars over 12 miles of track. The building of the Eureka Inn coincided with the opening of the new road to San Francisco. As a result of immense civic pride during this era of expansion, Eureka officially nicknamed itself Queen City of the Ultimate West. But Eureka's founding and livelihood was and remains linked to Humboldt Bay, the Pacific Ocean, and the related industries, especially salmon fishing and oyster harvesting. Eureka is the home port to more than 100 fishing vessels in two modern marinas, which can berth approximately 400 boats. This lively seaport town, the largest coastal city between San Francisco and Portland, Oregon, has a way of keeping its historic charm in a modern world. I am Hannah Mills. And I am Henry Miller. And this is Small Town America, and today we are doing Eureka, California. Yes. And we're going to give the pro tem mayor. Kim Burgle. Kim Burgle a call and get some some insight from a real Eurekan. Yeah. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Let's give uh, 
uh, council member and pro tem mayor Kim Bergel a call. Hi, this is Kim. Hi, Kim. This is Henry from the podcast. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. So we have just introduced you, your title, your your status. You were first elected as a council member in 2014, correct? That's correct. So as someone who's been in office for four years, uh, what's it like being a council member of a small town? I love being a council member of a small town. I absolutely (laughs) love it. I love where I live, so that's really helpful. And currently I'm sitting in as mayor pro tem for a short period. So it's been really wonderful. Yeah, that's right. The The current mayor is, is on medical leave, I understand. Uh-huh. So you've stepped yeah. in for a little bit. Were you always geared towards uh, city council? Was it always an interest to you? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I think it had to do more with when I became a parent. Mm. I became more interested in things that were happening. Actually, probably when I was pregnant. That's how I got involved. You know, I rode around with my kids all the time on a bicycle or walked everywhere and started noting transportation issues. And I got on a commission, a city commission, and that's my first involvement. But yeah, I used I watched the council meeting for, gosh, probably nine, 12 years before I ever even thought about running for office. I'm kind of a nerd that way. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I saw a I quote of a yours. You said when you were growing up in Eureka, because you're a fourth generation Eurekan. Is fourth that, generation, yes. Uh-huh. That is pretty impressive. So you said, I, I used to play in the forest. I used to ride my bike all over the place. Um, uh-huh. There were things for me to do, and it was close-knit. And I believe we can restore that. So yes. what exactly are you trying to restore, and what do you think was lost since you were uh, growing up in Eureka? Well, I think that part of the thing that was lost was our community Uh, coming together. And so, you know, people get busy, the internet, you know, cell phones, all of those things, you know, we communicate through social media more than anything. And so my idea was to try and get people to come together more and more in person and to work together to make things happen. Because I, I'm a firm believer that council can't do it by themselves. This is a city effort and we all need to be involved. Yeah, and does it make it easier to get people involved in a small town, or do you find that a small town is more likely to have a lot of combative uh, arguments going back and forth because of how uh, close to the problems everybody is? You know, no. I I think that we have our share of divisiveness at times. Certainly every place does. But I think, too, that we are a strong community here. We have a very generous community, and people are really willing to get involved when it's important. I've seen that over and over again. Just in the time that I've been even been on council, things have been shifting. You know, I when I was trying to sort of get an idea of how your city government works and how it works with the community, I, I do this for most towns, just sort of go onto the city page and... Mm-hmm they had the community services page Mm -hmm. and and the video that sort of describes how Parks and Rec is gone, but it's community services now and and all the different things that are included in that community services. And I just loved it. It did. It felt very community oriented. It was this idea of they're all grouped into the community. They're they're important to the community as a whole. And and so I, I could understand how that just just gathering from that Uh, Mm -hmm. that that would be how the community is. Yeah, that that program is Community Action, let's see, Program Eureka, Community 
Yeah. I may be saying it wrong, but I'm very involved with them. I, you know, they work with a lot of underserved youth. They do a lot of great work with people who are maybe um, in between jobs, having a hard time with that. They work with the marginalized population, people that maybe are homeless or close to homelessness. You know, they're not your standard parks and rec department. Let's put it that way. Right. They're very integrated in the community and do so much great work, so mm-hmm. much great work. And I'm so it's such an awesome thing to be able to work with them like yeah. I get to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also saw um, in another article that you went on a ride either with a police officer police? Uh-huh. and you saw communities that had, had living standards that you felt were unacceptable for uh, the citizens of Eureka. Can you explain uh-huh. maybe what, what those communities were like and, and how common it is and what the town's trying to do to address that? Sure. That article was probably right before I got on council. It was a police ride along. Yeah. And Though I've grown up here my whole life, there were areas that I hadn't realized were, you know, as bad as they were, if you will. We went to one place. It was just horrific. It smelled like sewer. But anyway, what we're doing is we've certainly been going after slumlords in the city, people that don't have a a standard of living that is quality for people. And that's been really helpful looking at finding more quality and affordable housing for folks which, as you know, probably, especially living in Portland, is a challenge. Yeah, right. for sure. At best. But it's been really interesting, and people have really come together. Not that we've solved the issue, because we haven't, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we are certainly on our way in that direction. Is this a newer problem? When, when did this start, where people started running out of housing, or quality housing at least? You know, I, I think that we've had a problem with homelessness. Um, it feels like, though, probably in the last five or six years, it's become more of a problem. Mm. And I'm not sure if that had to do with real estate prices in California or when it was when the mortgages were upside down and people were losing their houses like crazy. And then there's a whole population, actually, that is generational that have lived outside. I know someone that's lived outside for three generations. Oh, wow. And currently they're living now. Finally, it's so exciting. The second and third generation, so the daughter and her child are housed and have a job. And she's been clean off heroin for two years almost. It'll be in May. And so there is an opportunity for change and shift. We just need to have the support in place. Right. right. And I, I can tell you based off, I mean, I don't know how many towns that we've come across where affordable housing is a particularly difficult problem to overcome. Are there any ideas or, or maybe leaders elsewhere, people that you're watching or communities that you're watching that you're like, that might work in Eureka or that that's something that that's new that we haven't tried? Actually, we've been kind of on the cutting edge of some of that. We had a a vacation of our marsh. There were 300 people living back there at one point. We ended up vacating the marsh. And at that point, we had about 80 people left with no place to go. So some people in Eureka came up with this idea of container housing as a transition. And that program has been working stellarly. Basically, you go in for, I believe it's like 30 days, and it's a working program. So like you have to work, you have to keep your place clean. It's not a place where you just go lounge around, you know? Mm -hmm. And then currently we're also working on when you're through with that. So then she transitions. It's Betty Chin, who you may or may not have heard of. She's pretty popular, like Obama. And so we're currently working on getting the second level of that, which will be a transitional type of trailer where they actually pay rent. Many of those people that she's worked with have been housed or gotten jobs. So you, you mentioned jobs. What 
So we know the history of uh, Eureka as a huge lumber industry town. And we kind of found that a lot of towns that have struggled in the past economically, in a lot of cases, they're converting themselves from a mining town into like a tourism town. Um, uh-huh. wh- what role does that industry play in uh, Eureka? And what jobs are you trying to find people? So certainly we are looking into more and more tourism. Of course, we live in the beautiful Northern California with the Redwoods and a beautiful Humboldt Bay. The architecture here is fabulous. We're an art community. We've got all of those pieces. And so looking for businesses, you know, that are, um, I mean, pretty much whoever wants to come, not whoever. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to say that. But certainly we are open to businesses. We just converted our museum, actually the front part into a visitor center uh, with all local products. It's really, it's a beautiful spot for people to come and enjoy. Right. And can you say which museum? Because I know you have a lot of... The Clark Clark Museum. Oh, the Clark Museum. Okay. Because you have have several different uh, cultural institutions down there. So another thing I'm kind of curious about is you are... I'm, and correct me if I've remembered this wrong, but I'm pretty sure okay. that you're the largest coastal town between San Francisco and the Columbia River, right? That's that right. That is true. What, what what does that come with? Are you kind of like a capital of Northern California in a sense? Do people come from up and down the coast just to be in, in a kind of coastal metropolis? What's the How does that affect the culture of the town? Well, I don't know if I would call us the metropolis, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean <laughs> in relative uh, terms, obviously. Yeah. Certainly, we do have uh, a lot that attracts people here. We have all these different opportunities, like I said, for history, architecture, Native American information. There's just... Um, and so speaking of Native American history, we're going to spend quite a bit t- today talking about the uh, 1860 ma- massacre of the Wyatt... We uh, are. Sorry. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You're good. Um, so I saw in that, that same article, which was from about four years ago, that Mayor yeah. Yeager wrote an apology that was then redrafted and it, or it was criticized for taking the apology out of the apology. And I, I, was, uh-huh. I was wondering if you could kind of enlighten us about what that relationship is between Eureka, which does have this massacre as part of its history, and the the Native American tribes in the in the region, what's it like? Well, I think you know we're working towards exciting possibilities. Probably maybe seven or eight or ten years ago, part of the island was given back to the tribe. Right. And currently, our council voted to return the island to the tribe, and we are currently working with the tribe to make that happen. The rest of the island, there are four or five houses on there that are private that we will um, not be able to return that property, but everything else on that island for restoration is a sacred land for them. So it's going to be a great thing. And I personally have a great relationship with them. I really appreciate their willingness to work with us. And, you know, we're looking at developing some things on the waterfront where we're actually going to be honoring them in a way through different things, whether that's an area for history. Uh, There's a great history museum, Native American history museum, in the Clark Museum that I was telling you about. Right. So, yeah, I think that, you know, it's a process, but that bridge is being built. Hmm. And I'm very grateful for that. I think it's really going to heal our community. Um, You said that you would have handled that that apology. I mean... we're, we're yeah it, you said you would have handled <laughs> it differently and yeah. so i i found it interesting it's it's 100 and it was 154 years after uh, the massacre and it was right. still something that you know it rather than an outright apology it was kind of picked over how would you have handled it differently and why do you think it's difficult to write an apology for 
for at least for Mayor Yeager. The, the letter Mayor Yeager wrote was beautiful. Mm. I give him a lot of credit for that. That was really a beautiful letter. How I would have handled it differently, I really believe that, you know, we were sorry, we're sorry, that's what we're writing, then we're sorry. And we don't need to be focusing on whether we're going to get sued or not. Doing the right thing, sometimes you have uh, unintended consequences. But doing the right thing, in my opinion, is very important. So I wouldn't have changed the letter at all. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Honestly. Well, okay. So there was, I, I, I'm reading the article and it just says that there was a, a, the words formal apology was replaced by support and yeah. a commitment towards healing. Is, is that, I, I, can you kind of explain that a little bit? Well, I, it was all had to do with liability was mm. part of the problem. We had other council members that were, I wasn't a council member at the time, right. but that were very concerned about the city being sued by the tribe. Oh, okay. For for admitting that we somehow had any part in the massacre. And again, I would say that um, my take on that was, and still is, that when you say you're sorry, you need to, number one, change your behavior, and number two, not be concerned about the outcome if you really mean it. And that's, mm. that was my frustration with it. I feel like I would certainly agree with you in this case. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so I, we've talked about that. I, I kind of want you to talk a little bit about where is the town going in the future. Well, what's exciting is we're just changing up our zoning codes. So we are going to be able to do a lot more in our city, which is super exciting as far as our old town coastal areas. We've just got another piece of our coastal trail finished, and it is fabulous. It's like <laughs> super exciting. And currently, we have another trail piece coming that we'll be working on finishing around 2020. Um, that's going to be a loop trail, so it's going to be just phenomenal to be able to get around on bike or walking or however. Right. So, a lot, a lot of great, great things happening. And again, we were just deemed an art and cultural city. We have um, an Arts Alive that happens the first Saturday of every month. Lots of galleries down there and people that show in different businesses. So there's just so much happening in our city that is, that is positive, that is moving forward. So I have uh, one more question, and I think Hannah uh-huh. is going to ask you one more question to, to finish uh, the interview. Um, okay. So you are fourth generation, uh, Eurekan. Yes. Are, and you're, you're doing a lot to uh, try to, to, to make the city... Um, work for your children. Yes. Are, are you hoping that they stay in Eureka yes. forever? Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, I am. Straightforward. I, am. Yes. Um, I mean, I love it here. It, the thing is, it's so beautiful. I mean, you don't have to go anywhere. People go on vacation. I'm like, oh my gosh, you could drive, you know, 10 minutes to the Redwoods, 30 minutes to the sun. You don't have to feel guilty about working because it's foggy <laughs> 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 in the morning. I mean, you got the best of all of it here. They're, they're in their early teens, right? Your two yeah, kids, my right? daughter's 14 and my son's 12. Okay. Are they excited about having a mom in city council? You know, some days. It's some interesting. Days. When I asked them, well, when I asked them when I was going to run, they said, well, mom, you watch the meetings anyway. You might as well just go on there. <laughs> so that's what I did. Both of us are, well, he's like fifth generation Portland. Um, uh-huh. And I've grown up here my entire life. And, and, and as I watch my community change, I'm constantly sort of remembering things about its past, uh, mm-hmm. stories that are very specific to a certain time and kind of illustrate what Portland was like at that time. Do you have any personal stories 
or or you know historical stories but things that you live through in eureka that you feel just perfectly uh illustrate what what eureka was at that point in time and how it's how it's changed since then absolutely so one of the things is i was telling you know that we we weren't allowed to go down where the trail was well also we weren't allowed to go to our old town because oh. there were so many bars and there were so many fishermen, lumber people, and there was fighting. And I, one time we went for Fourth of July, and it was a knifing in one oh, of the geez. bars. So yeah, we couldn't go down there, and it was you know it was kind of a bummer. And so in 1976 or seven, I don't recall, they started uh, revamping Old Town, mm. and they put in a gazebo in a waterfront. And I'll tell you now, when I go down there, I just it warms my heart. So much different. My kids. You know, they ride their bikes down there and have ice cream. There's a boardwalk. There's all kinds of these great, fun shops of local business owners that are very eclectic and interesting. Mm. It's just, it's so different than it was when I was a kid. And I can see that progress. Yeah. It's so awesome that we have so many positive things happening. It's a balance, but I choose to focus mostly on, as much as I can, on the positive changes that have happened because there have been so many. Right. Mm -hmm. But Henry is, is giving me the signal. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, can I can tell you two more cool things about our city. Just two more. Yes, please. Yeah, please. So we have the Madikit. She's our fairy. She's been on the bay for over 110 years. We have the smallest licensed bar in California Ooh, on that cool. boat. So come on down, have a drink. <laughs> and then secondly, we have the smallest accredited zoo uh, in the United States, I believe. The Sequoia and, um, one? It's called Sequoia Park Zoo. Right. And currently, we are working vigilantly to complete our plan, which will be a canopy walk that will be coming. Ooh, um, cool. So through the redwoods, right? Yeah, so, yeah, totally. That's yeah. awesome. Well, wonderful. Yeah. You've painted a, a lovely picture of Eureka that, I mean, once again, we're, we're ten, we want really, probably really want to visit now. <laughs> but, you should come. You come, you call me, and I'll take you around. Well, we, oh, we sure perfect. will. We, it's not, that sounds amazing. Okay, yeah. well, uh, thank you so much, Kim Burgle, for coming on. You bet. It's Burgell. Oh, Burgell. <laughs> You're I, good. I would You're screw good. that up. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank, thank you. you. I appreciate you having me. Take good care. You, you too. too. Bye. Bye-bye. I can't. Of course. <laughs> of course. I would pronounce that name wrong. I, uh, um, we should probably start with the Weot peoples. Go for it. Because they are pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the uh, Weot people lived in almost the exact same area as present-day Eureka. They were, they were a relatively small tribe, I think 2,000 um, people before colonial contacts. I think they were like. it, it said that they had in the hundreds in the Eureka area. Yeah, I think the whole community, this, the community was about 2,000 people, including uh, maybe their, their nearest neighbors. Anyway, so people have lived in the area of present-day Humboldt County for about 6,000 years. As you said at the beginning, they called their home Jarujiji. The very interesting thing that I found about them that really popped out to me, they were famously skilled basket weavers. These baskets were so high quality that they could actually hold water and apparently even be cooked out of. That's amazing. Which is mind-blowing. I mean, it was a very specific artisanal skill. It wasn't, it, not everybody could do it. Uh, women were the prime basket weavers. The the shaman uh, were commonly women. Anyway, so the, the, we, uh, they, they lived in different 
types of houses, but they, there were certainly permanent log houses or semi-permanent log houses that had a really cool door that was just like a circle cut into the wall. So incredibly skilled basket weavers. They actively managed their food resources. This meant that they had restrictions over hunting and overfishing. They also used uh, burning techniques for farming, uh, basic farming, like, uh, you know, creating open grasslands and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Their currency included obsidian, uh, seashells, and even uh, woodpecker scalps, which is a new one to me. I have not heard of it. Scalps? Like, not the skulls? Uh, Apparently just the scalps. It said scalps. Um, And dance outfits uh, were the uh, popular currency. And they also didn't have um, chiefs, so to speak. They had... Like, rich people were their leaders. So if you... So person, Yeah, the person... It was... I don't know. I don't know enough about economics to really talk about like the history. Sort of, of a cap, not sort of a capitalist. It's hierarchy? more like oligarchical. Okay. Uh, based on what I saw about it, um, so they they didn't really have chiefs. They had kind of leaders or 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 a group of people who were um, wealthy, and so and that's how they showed their wealth through um, those materials, knife, obsidian knives, and seashells, and and such. They were also among the last uh, native tribes to California to uh, make contact with European settlers. Um, because they kept the, the, the bay was so yeah. difficult to find, Which apparently. Is, yeah, really interesting. So the way that the Humboldt Bay kind of works is you have this front part that's just a long shoreline. And it's it looks to me like it's mostly sand dunes with a few right. cliffs and trees on it. But the access into the bay is very small it's comparatively. Yeah. yeah, it's and it opens up into this big belly. Yeah, yeah, it's uh belly. so so yeah <laughs> so people U- European um, tradesmen and and uh, yeah uh, settlers and colonists would just sail right past it. But there were uh, probably. Encounters between Spanish missionaries, although I couldn't find an actual record of that. It just was mentioned. Uh, Spanish missionaries from uh, San Francisco. They may have encountered uh, Russian tradesmen from north. It's well documented, according to Wikipedia. That, so that what Russian tradesmen? That they at least found the bay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And... Apparently, but they left because they had already uh, killed all of the water-based mammal that they wanted i can't remember what it was called water-based mammals yeah whales no no like it was like a different word for a seals sea- seals i don't think it was seal okay well, i don't know we're quasi historians uh anyway so uh it wasn't until 1806 when an american sailor named jonathan winship um sailed his vessel the O'Kane into humboldt bay and that was the first recorded encounter with the bay by a white European mm. um, or an American of a white American. It, I mean, it, nothing happened for a little bit on, on the uh, settler scale. But by 1849, there was gold discovered in the region. The California gold rush took off or, yeah, really Eureka. took yeah, Eureka. Um, and apparently the gold in Eureka was just like surface gold. Not very Oh, no, t- I'm saying Eureka because that's the state's oh. motto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, Eureka is the only city, I think, in the U.S. that is has the same name as their state's motto. Oh, that's cool. And and it was because I think it's kind of funny. It's, it's well named because yeah. I have found it applies both to the gold mm-hmm. and... And the fact that it took 300 years for them to find it. 
so anyway, just to give people a bit of context, 1849, you have the gold rush really starting to kick off. San Francisco's population from 1849 to 1855 went from 2,000 people to 59,000 people. Huge population explosion. Eureka was intended to be a gold outpost at first, but it was... Arcata ended up being a better because it was closest to the uh, supply lines that yeah. were going to the mines. And so oh, yeah. Arcata yeah. took a lot of that away from uh, Eureka. Eureka, even though Eureka had deeper ports. Mm. But not for long. Yeah. So what eventually happened, or actually quite quickly happened, is that Eureka became a vital timber industry port because all of the construction that was going on in San Francisco and all the gold mines, it required uh, lumber in order to build that. But yeah, so so essentially white settlers started arriving in the beginning of the 1850s. Uh, There were around 2,000 WIAT members. This says in the hundreds. Well, I think it's I think there's they're talking specifically in the Eureka area. Yeah. Okay. So Amerindian people living in the area around Eureka, there were about 2000 of them. And by 1860, there were 200. It was a very uneven and cruel relationship. And uh, the most famous incident happened on February 26th when Eureka settlers orchestrated a nighttime attack on the Wiat religious site of what is now called Indian Island, which is just across from the downtown Eureka today. Um, the settlers used guns, knives, axes, and killed between 80 and 250 uh, Wiat uh, tribesmen, and most of them were women and children because the men had left to replenish their supplies. Mm-hmm. Um the murderers were known locally, but no charges were filed. The remaining Wiat took shelter at Fort Humboldt, which was partially established to reduce violence the, between the American settlers and the local Wiat. But many Wiats died in Fort Humboldt of exposure and starvation and were eventually forcibly relocated to the Klamath Reservation Uh, and then on to other reservations after the 1860s. So by 1910, disease, slavery, genocide, forced removal, resource depletion, all of these things had dropped the population down to about 100 members. Uh, However, today the tribe is growing. It's 600 600 strong right now, around. And uh, there was a Wiat-specific reservation uh, which was a 20-acre plot purchased by a church group in the 1900s. And unfortunately, in 1961, the California Rancheria Act terminated the legal status of the tribe. However, they sued and got their legal status back in 1981. And another lawsuit over contaminated water uh, in 1991 ended up with we uh, getting the Table Bluff Reservation, which is an 88-acre plot at the south end of Humboldt Bay. That's a very brief sum up of the history of the Wiats, there is not a whole lot of information that I could find easily about them. I think largely that is because of uh, their size and, and, and they're, they're essentially, they were defined uh, everywhere read by the massacre. So everything that happened after was kind of a result of that. Right. Um, anyway, it really bummed me out reading this. This was particularly ugly to me. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's worse to the people who experienced it. The mayor wrote an apology. Uh, the mayor of Eureka wrote an apology in 
2014, I think. Mm. But the apology was edited to essentially take out the mm. onus of it because they were afraid they were going to get sued by the tribe. Which, which is, is what she... Yeah, which yeah. is about as gutless as... It, I, I don't know. Anyway, we'll, we'll move on. So like I said, the lumber industry was massive for the beginning of Eureka. One of the people to really profit off of this was John Dolbeer, who was a, a partner with William Carson. So they were entrepreneurs, essentially, who moved to Eureka to take part in this uh, new industry. Car- uh, William Carson was one of the first people to cut down a tree in Humboldt Bay for commercial profit. John Dolbeer uh, was probably the biggest name in timber, like cutting down trees inventions. I'm not saying this very well. Logging, <laughs> logging inventions. Logging inventions. He really knew how to cut down trees. <laughs> he was really good at it. So he invented the steam donkey. So the steam donkey is essentially a tool. Um, it's a steam-powered engine that helps people move logs, which was really difficult at the time. Uh, he also invented different types of saws, including the circular saw, which needed to spin faster uh, in order to cut through the thick hides of redwood trees, which when they were cutting them down, they were big enough that some of these redwoods were turned into individual dance platforms. So they would have like dances on them. Um, <laughs> you, like you've everybody's seen the pictures of people standing on these things, but they were... They really are massive. So he worked with William Carson. William Carson was one of the first lumber barons, and he built one of the most famous uh, Victorian homes in the country in Eureka. And it's a Queen Anne-style home that also includes like just fair elements of every kind of Victorian architecture there is, including East Lake and Italianate and stick architecture, which I have been misidentifying for people for years now and now i know what it looks like it's bonkers it looks like a haunted house yeah and and uh the the carson mansion is haunted according oh okay there we go let's talk about it uh apparently i i always feel weird doing this because i'm not like a supernatural believer but it's always fun to talk about i like ghosts what uh, i don't think hannah do you think it's safe to say that you ain't afraid of no ghosts I don't have anything to say to that because I don't believe in them. Are you not afraid of any ghosts? Uh, so the house is supposedly haunted by Sarah Carson. Who is the wife? Yes. Okay. And she never really liked the house. Okay. Uh, I mean, it is a gaudy, just overdone masterpiece it looks like a wedding cake had an orgy with a bunch of other wedding cakes yeah and apparently the inside looks like the like a shining like the wallpaper and everything just looks like something out of the shining it's now a private club so so it's rumor that she she didn't really like the ornate home he built for her and that she uh she rocks in her rocking chair inside which sounds like the worst thing ever that would to be spend pretty... <laughs> your eternity doing in a home you didn't even like to begin with and rocking back and forth. I, I bet you what it is is that she would do that while they were alive just to be like, because she knew it annoyed him, and, but she didn't want to say it out loud that she hated the house that he spent millions of dollars on. So she would just rock the chair back and forth to <laughs> aggravate him. Well, the other thing she does apparently is, or 
inexplicably pies fall from the counter even though they were very far from the edge so she's pies? also throwing pies at her house oh my god she just sounds like a, a killjoy come on i don't know she's stuck in a home she doesn't like yeah that would that would surely blow yeah there's a lot of ghosts and i'm quoting well that would make sense because there are a tons of victorian homes there yeah and Not... i'll go into more of them after this but... oh well i want you go to them now oh, okay so apparently there are about 27 spots in old town eureka that are haunted or have reported ghost sightings mm-hmm. and one of the guys who gives the old town ghost tours in eureka his name is eric volmers it's actually a very like ghosty name, Eric Volmers. Yeah, that's a, yeah. He says, Eureka used to be the center of the North State. You had all the sailors coming off the ships, all the loggers coming into town during the weekends, and all the gold miners coming in, and things would heat up. There was a lot of prostitution, drinking, gambling, and violence. Something people don't know about Eureka is that it was the last place prostitution was legal in California. What the hell is us finding the places where prostitution lasted until forever i don't even know so there's the the eureka or eureka books and it's in the old alpine brothel which is this building that's and apparently it had a bunch of violent incidents and there is a ghost of an of a woman from the victorian era that haunts the alley and she appears in the window of an adjacent building okay and then also, there's Eagle House Victorian Inn, mm-hmm. and you can still see bullet holes in the wall, and a lot of spooky shit happens there, too. And <laughs> just, literally, I have them numbered. Yeah, because there's so many. There are so many. The, uh, there's also the Clark Historical Museum, and that is haunted by three different ghosts, apparently. One that is around the piano area. And the woman who runs the museum said she might have been the piano's previous owner and is still happy to be around. (laughs) Really happy, apparently. But also there's a Chinese woman who worked in the building before the turn of the century and her spirit or ghost seems lost and confused. And then the third is also a woman. So she's a woman and she haunts the storage room on the second floor of the museum and she is angry. Mm. That's that's all they have to say. Sounds like these uh, these salty sailors and uh, lumbermen kind of left a bad taste in the mouths of all the, the women who lived in that town. Yeah, they they were not this one. <laughs> There's some grudges, man. This oh wait, this is the only man I found. There, okay, I, there I, there might be two, but this one was one of them, and I I have a note next to it that just says what. <laughs> <laughs> So it's the Morris Graves Museum of Art, and it used to be a library. And apparently a immigrant worker fell from the balcony during construction of the Andrew Carnegie building in 1903, and his ghost has yet to leave. And he is known to hang around the rotunda near the water fountain, and he likes to touch women's bottoms while they drink water. He's a fresh ghost. What? What? Wait, who wrote this? This is this is all from an article by Luis Molina of the Tri-City Weekly. And the guy telling about this is Volmers. Oh, okay. So He likes to get fresh. He likes yeah. to get fresh. 
And another ghost in the Eureka, Eureka High School is a teenage girl, and she lost the leading role in the school play and hanged herself in the lighting booth in full view of the actress on stage who ignored the wide-eyed corpse in the balcony and continued the show. Holy. Yeah. And apparently, if you stand on center stage and you have the lights on in a certain way, you can see the ghost of the girl who died on stage. Yeah, that, that one is particularly terrifying. Uh, you did mention uh, in that, in all the ghost sightings, you mentioned a few key places. Uh, the Clark Museum, which is their his- historic museum, right? Their historical society museum. Um, there's the Sequoia Park, which has a zoo and um, some virgin and I, redwoods. And I actually talk about the zoo a bit. Okay, yeah, go for which it. Which is pretty, it's a pretty interesting thing. So the zoo is the oldest operated zoo in California. And She said it was the smallest? Yeah, I didn't see that in okay. the information, but it's very possible uh, all I saw was that it was the oldest zoo in California. Okay. Uh, it was founded in 1907, and it's a part of a complex of parks at 60 acres of mature second-growth coastal redwoods. Mm. Oh, what's kind of cool is it includes a public playground, a duck pond, and also a meticulously kept formal and natural gardens which include a variety of rhododendrons. (gasps) Rhododendron gardens. Oregon. We love rhododendrons. Yes, we do. So they have had a bit of controversy, though. Okay. In 1982, there was this family of four black bears, and they needed to do some renovations, I believe. They They were doing construction, and so they took the two bear cubs up to Cave Junction in Oregon while they did construction and then they killed their parents. Oh. Which was real not not nice. Those guys can expect to be haunted by an old lady in a rocking chair who trashes (laughs) their pies forever. Uh, It got got a lot of national media. Yeah. People were very upset. Oh, and the zoo's director was was replaced after that. And it's it went through another controversy in 2012 because the zoo's budget had doubled since 2002 but other departments in the city of eureka were having budget cuts Mm. left and right and so they kept trying to propose the closure of the zoo because the zoo was the only thing getting money but it's but it's a very cool place now it has an array of different animals and they're trying to focus on more native animals and and it's also one of the things that is a part of the community services department Mm. so they have one of the nation's best preserved victorian era commercial districts yeah and it really is it's fascinating and beautiful looking. yeah they're yeah. not they're not the kind of they're not ha- homes that look like other victorian homes elsewhere these are made out of redwood uh, a lot of them and they are just over the top of obscene extravagance and yeah. they, there were there's like a whole period piece fashion that went on from the 1890s i think i saw until the 1940s in eureka where people would just like italian renaissance or you know uh gothic or uh, Victorian, they were just throwing out all kinds of cool stuff up and down. So they are they're spectacular looking homes. And also, did you know that redwood it doesn't suffer from bug rot or water? 
as much as other trees, and it's also more fire resistant. So homes that are made out of red uh, redwood were like more likely to survive in the San Francisco fires. It would make sense because of how large they get and and how old they like they are mm. they last hundreds and hundreds of years longer than many of the old growth other yeah. old growth evergreens. Yeah. So that and, would make sense to me that they yeah. would be maybe a little more fire retardant and moisture repellent. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. Uh, anyway. But uh, so there's a couple other things I wanted to talk about. But just so we kind of get an idea of what their economy is like now. Mm-hmm. Eureka is pretty on on point with like the median age, which I think is kind of a really good. It, it, it helps understand like people understand kind of what the community is like so their median age is 35.6 and the usa is 37.8 california is 36.2 okay their median income is 37,000 essentially is that low well for california california is 61 oh geez almost almost 62 how and the u.s is fifth like almost 54 their property value in eureka is uh, about to thirty-eight thousand. Okay. Uh, California is five hundred and thirty thousand. Yeah. Well. And the U.S. is two hundred and twenty-eight. So they have a higher property value than the national average, but a lower income than the national mm. national average by about fifteen thousand. Well, it's probably because it's incredibly beautiful. Right. I'm guessing. Yeah. But and here's where it kind of is just California has the highest poverty rate of any state in the U.S. It's 20.6%. Jeez. The national average is 14%. And Eureka is 24.5%. Why? How how is this? Well, and I, like, I didn't, so uh, Miriam at my office, Mm -hmm. my coworker whose parents live there, she said, like, it it was a lot of, there was a lot of drug activity. Uh, I mean, the fact that she said she knew somebody who was third generation, like, outdoor living. Living outdoors. Yeah, Yeah. that is is incredible. I can't believe it. Yeah. And how how big is the community again? The population is 27,000. Okay. So that's actually not that small. And she she mentioned uh, maybe tech companies or, or I think she might have actually said internet companies or something. And I'm wondering... Like this, this town absolutely does have a lot of cultural amenities, and there should be. There's a reason to invest a lot in a tourist economy, but it's also a bigger town than the like the tourist economies that we've seen that have really worked for several decades yeah. that still have some of the same problems, but have you know on a smaller scale like Telluride and you know Jackson. Right. Um, I keep bringing this up. I'm just worried about towns choosing tourist uh, tourist economies, and then there's like a huge bust because it's not very stable, and it can't really employ that many people year round. And then also, I don't know I, what the pay is like. Well, um, it, it's not. That's yeah. the thing. I mean, they're they most... still have lumber going on there, right? I, I think I saw that. Yes, they do. Yeah, healthcare and social is the most common retail and then accommodation and food service. Those are the most common, but the highest paying are utilities and agriculture, forestry, fishing, and hunting. And those employ less than 200 people each. Mm. So that that sounds like a pretty good snapshot of like the rest of of America of non like California America where that, where uh, 
healthcare and um, yeah, utilities industries are like the big economic hires. They hire, but they don't pay. Yeah. Um, unless you're a doctor. Anyway. <laughs> Happy stories? Before we get to the notable people, let's talk a bit about Jefferson State because it applies to a couple of the towns that we've talked to. Yeah, talked yeah, about. yeah. So Jefferson State is... Is an idea. Is currently a proposed U.S. state that would span a lot of rural area, southern Oregon and northern California uh, communities, counties. And the reason they chose it is because Thomas Jefferson, the third president, sent the Lewis and Clark expedition into the Pacific Northwest, and he envisioned establishing an independent nation in the western portion of the northern of northern America. Yeah. So they used that. He wanted to call it the Republic of P- the Pacific, though, which would be interesting. Yeah. Uh, this is differing from we've we I don't think we've actually mentioned Cascadia but it's differing from Cascadia which is to secede entirely from the union the state of Jefferson is to create a new state and this comes from the fact that those communities generally vote opposing to their the state that they are a part of yeah and what's crazy and there's also a lot of Amerindian communities that are split in half by the Oregon California border right if I'm remembering correctly Yes. So what's interesting about this specifically is that they they would have been the small so so as of the 2010 census the state would be 457,859 which is smaller than any other state. Okay. But with the addition of the modern Jefferson movement which includes uh, Humboldt County as well as Coos and several others. So you're talking about we're, we're we're about halfway between San Francisco and the border of Oregon. So that's around where Humboldt is, and then it's going all the way up to Coos, which is about halfway. Coos, sorry. Coos uh, which is about halfway up the Oregon coast. But it includes a a lot of different counties, including Douglas and Shasta, Mendocino. These they're these big counties. After that, it would be two million. 300,000 people, essentially. Hmm. And that would be the 36th most populous state in That's interesting. The California, get, people talk about turning that into like four or five different states a lot. And I remember I just uh, watched or read something recently that I, I can't cite or quote. <laughs> so, <laughs> a grain of salt. But I, I remember uh, that was saying that even if all of these places were separated because of the uh you know people on the in the coastal cities vote differently from people inland like the other states would just be slightly less blue (laughs) that's that's no and i think that's entirely true but and i just want to finish off with this on this topic yeah yeah so after the 2016 election it was basically all of the rural California counties went to Donald Trump yeah. in a landslide. Yeah. And pretty similarly with Oregon, but not entirely. And so after that happened, 
they talked about, you know, the California secession, you know, after mm-hmm. the 2016 election, there were a lot of people being like, California should just secede and show them how much we are worth. Yeah. So they talked specifically about how they would, you know, go directly to the federal government if that happened to secede, like to secede from California and stay on with the United States. Also, I thought their flag and seal was a little bit interesting. So their flag is green. Mm-hmm. And it has a gold mining pan with the words "The Great Seal of the State of Jefferson" and two X's askew of each other to represent the two regions that have a sense of abandonment. <laughs> that's pretty okay. I didn't mean to laugh at that. That's just that's just if Don't, like no, I, mo- most flags are pretty uh, upbeat. It's um, super super grim. I do, but before we move on from this, I did look at and we don't we don't like to get uh, super political on this we like to keep it to very local politics but when it comes to the 2016 election in northern california it is almost bizarre like anytime you have a cluster of people living together they voted hillary clinton like mm-hmm. you would i would zoom in on a map and I'd be like oh that looks like a town that went red and then i'd zoom closer in and it was just like the what the tiny county or district that represented the heart of the downtown uh, went blue. It's really interesting. That was one of the most like bizarre rural urban divides that I've seen. I didn't see that in Nevada or some interesting people, notable peoples. Yes, apart from the ghost lady in the rocking chair, and then other ghost peoples. Okay, that was Sarah Carson. She's not ghost lady. Let's give her some respect. Yeah. <laughs> She's ruining pies. Okay, Vincent Hayes Gaddis. Gaddis, I hope. Gettys. Anyway, he died there, so it's not a huge problem if I don't pronounce it correctly. Okay, because he's not like you know. So, anyway, he was the one. He's he's noted as inventing the term Bermuda Triangle. <gasps> Ooh, and he's yes. from there. No, died there. <laughs> he died there. <laughs> Literally <laughs> just said. That. Okay, hopefully the next person will have more relationship to uh, Eureka, and also maybe I will end on somebody who. Okay. So Brendan James Fraser. <gasps> Brendan <gasps> Fraser from The Mummy? From The Mummy. You don't say. Also, George of the Jungle, which was the one that like, I thought of immediately. You thought of George of the Jungle. That is a pretty good movie. It's a I classic. Still- George, George, George of the Jungle. Strong yep. as he can be. Kinda Our listeners are missing die. out on your amazing shoulder dance. <laughs> uh, he was in Crash. I Oh, yeah. He was the husband of yeah. the woman. Okay. I remember now. Anyway, yeah, so we all know who Brendan Fraser is. Yeah. But somebody who was actually born there. Okay. And is the composer and writer of a song I frequently sing in the shower. Oh, no. Sarah Barry Alice. And what, did, what song did she do, write and compose? You're grinning like an idiot. Please just tell us. <laughs> it's the, I'm not going to write you a love song. I don't know. I've never heard that. Okay. Yes, you definitely have. Okay. Anyway, okay. So she she wrote this the song Love Song. She's really... I liked it. It was a great song. Okay. And sort of on a side note, so the Disney characters, Donald Duck, Scrooge McDuck, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, Daisy Duck, and most of their supporting cast live in the fictional city of Duckburg. <laughs> and while the creator of these characters has never said exactly where Duckburg is. 
He said, it's a imaginary town. I won't bother to say precisely where I situated Duckburg and Calisota on America's West Coast. But if you get out a good map and compare the coastline, you'll see that I stuck the old gold prospectors adopted hometown directly across the bay from a very appropriately named actual city. Eureka. Got it. Well, look at that. <laughs> so I kind of want to um, go there and like visit Duckburg. <laughs> they should make that. That would be a fantastic attraction. I would go there. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Great. Eureka was really interesting. It was. That was, that's a cool town. I don't know. Yes. What What else should we say about it real fast? I told the pro tem mayor that I'd driven through and seen the signs for Eureka and why Eureka. And I, I had since I was a kid and I always thought that was bizarre. It looked like why Eureka was somebody trying to spell Eureka and not doing it correctly it's like when you write something in pen and you're just like i'll just move down the coastline and, <laughs> and yeah. you're like oh sh- damn it why rika <laughs> whoops we go about 50 miles south it's sort of it's sort of crazy also i love that there's this story that mark twain i'm uh, i'm assuming he made it up yeah. that somebody saw bakery without the b spelled backwards and it was why rika Oh, yeah, yeah. No, the reason it's called Wairika is because it's the name of a mountain, Mount Shasta, to be specific. Right. That is the native name. Anyway, I always drove through there, and I was confused by it as a child, and I remember when phones that accessed the internet became popularized, and I was able to look it up, but because I was driving through Wairika, there was no phone service, so (laughs) I had to save like this thought in the back of my head until I could figure out why Eureka and why Eureka were named what they are named. And it's a very, I'm really glad to know now. I knew before. Uh, honestly, that, that's the closest that we've had on this program as to, to ramblings of a madman. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It just, <laughs> it's like something that's like oh, I'm sorry I love you I, I didn't mean that <laughs> <laughs> okay um, thank you very much Eureka for being a fascinating town to study and, and we really hope I really hope to visit you soon and uh, thank you to our listeners uh, and thank you to Ned Space for letting us use your studio Big, Bigfoot Podcast Studio and check us out you can find the rest of our stuff online alright I'm not gonna write you a love song